Welcome to episode 10 of Painting the Corners, the baseball and foreign policy podcast. I'm your host, Lincoln Mitchell. Before we get started, just want to give some information. If you want to hear more from me, follow me on Twitter at Lincoln Mitchell. If you need to contact me, if you have any thoughts about the show, or maybe you want to be a guest on the show or something like that, I'm at Lincoln at LincolnMitchell.com. You can also contact me at that email address if you want to hear more about my books or a book event or something like that. Let me just tell you a little bit about a couple of upcoming book events. My new book is called Will Big League Baseball Survive? Globalization, the End of Television, Youth Sports, and the Future of Major League Baseball. And that's from Temple University Press. Right now you can buy it at Amazon, Powell's, through the Temple University Press website. But I am doing a couple of events. One is coming up very soon. At December 1st, I'll be at Burgino Baseball Clubhouse, which is on 11th Street in Manhattan. That's at 7 p.m. And a week later, on December 8th, I'll be at the Baseball Center, which is also in Manhattan, on Broadway and 74th Street, also at 7 p.m. At both of those events, you'll have an opportunity to buy the book, to chat about the book, hear my thoughts on it, and have it signed. I am working on putting some events together in San Francisco in January, so stay tuned if you're located in the Bay Area and would like to attend that. And if I'm open to going anywhere else for events, too, I'm working on a few other events in a few other places. Up. Uh, before I introduce our guest today, I want to just mention that in the show so far, we've often focused on the foreign policy side, on the former Soviet Union, particularly on Georgia and Ukraine, and that's because of who I am and what I study. But I wanted to move away from that and look more broadly at other parts of the world, and we do that today. Today's show focuses on Cuba and the Caribbean region more generally. Obviously, there's a real baseball angle there as well. I also want to, again, apologize in advance that we do have some Trump talk here because one of our guests has some real expertise to bear on that, and it is an enormous reality of foreign policy that Donald Trump will be the next president of the United States. Let me now take a moment and introduce our guest. Carlos Vargas Ramos is a research associate at the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College, and he works there on the impact of migration on Puerto Rican political behavior, political attitudes and orientation, as well as Caribbean politics more broadly. He is the co-editor, along with Edwin Melendez, of Puerto Ricans at the Dawn of the New Millennium, which is published by the Center for Puerto Rican Studies in 2014. He also co-edited with Anthony Stevens Arroyo, uh, Blessing La Politica, the Latino Religious Experience and Political Engagement in the United States, and that was Prager Press in 2012. His new work, Race, Front, and Center, Perspectives on Race Among Puerto Ricans, is a reader on the subject of race based on articles produced by the Center. If you want to hear more about Carlos, you can check out the Centro de Estudios Puerto Ricanos website, Understanding, Preserving, Sharing the Puerto Rican Experience, and that's through Hunter College. Our baseball guest today is Roberto Gonzalez Echeverria, and he is the Sterling Professor of Hispanic and Comparative Literature at Yale University. He is, was born in Cuba. He is the author of Alejo Carpentier, The Pilgrim at Home, 1977 and 1990, The Voice of the Masters, Writing and Authority in Modern Latin American Literature. 1985, Myth and Archive, A Theory of Latin American Narrative, 1990-1998, and Celestina's Brew, Continuities, Continuities of the Baroque in Spanish and Latin American Literature, that's 1993. His baseball book is called The Pride of Havana, A History of Cuban Baseball. That was written in 1999. And if you are interested in baseball in Cuba, or really interested in Cuba in general, I highly recommend this book. It is it is, reflects Professor Gonzalez's extraordinary knowledge of baseball in Cuba and his love for baseball, and that really comes through almost on every page. And you also just learn a lot about what it was like in, in kind of pre-revolutionary Cuba. So I highly recommend that book. That's really the reason I reached out to him as I read the book. Um, he is so uh, please check that out if you get a chance. 
He's highly, has won a number of awards as a professor of literature, but I want to just point out perhaps the most uh, impressive of these. He received the National Humanities Medal from President Obama at the White House in March 2011. His newest work, Miguel de Cervantes, Exemplary Novels, in which he edited and was translated by Edith Grossman, was just published by Yale University Press. And for more information on Professor Gonzalez, visit the website of the Yale University Department of Spanish and Portuguese. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation.
it's a, a very prosperous, used to be a very prosperous town in the northern coast of central Cuba, Sabala Grande. Then we moved to Havana, and there I played even more, and uh, I played uh, with the school and, and, and so forth. Uh, I began to blossom. Uh, I, um, I was a catcher. I should have never been a catcher because um, I was very, very fast on my feet, uh, very fast. I uh, had some terrific hands, which was good for being a catcher, but being so fast. Uh, but because we organized our own games, and I tended to be one of the organizers, we had to have a catcher, and nobody wanted to catch. But we had to have a catcher, so I became a catcher. Nobody wanted to catch because you do get hurt. Particularly when all I had for protection was a mask and a mitt. Didn't have a chest protector, didn't have shin guards, and didn't have a protective cup. <laughs> I didn't wear one until I came to this country. Very good hands and protected, <laughs> protected myself very well. So uh, then in Havana I played, uh, I played quite a bit and began to, to go regularly then to the stadium in Havana. The, the Cuban League, the important uh, professional league, the winter league, played all of its games in Havana in one stadium. The Grand Stadium de La Habana or Stadium del Cerro and I went there many, many times to watch uh, the Cuban Winter League and then uh, the Cuban Sugar Kings of the uh, International League. I could, I, could, I could talk for hours about uh, the Sugar Kings and their, uh, what they were the legacy of. They were, among other things, the legacy of the New York Cubans in the Negro Leagues uh, who played here and won the, the Negro League Championship in 1947. In any case, uh, those are my, uh, my memories. Uh, uh, I remember my father was also uh, was a lawyer, but he was also uh, a professor of physical education and coach. And he coached the uh, Instituto team in my, in my town. And I remember distinctly that he brought home, so that they would not be stolen, a whole box of brand new baseballs, which he would use probably one a game. Uh, and put them in his armoire, and I would go there to look at these these balls that had this wonderful smell of leather, and a little bit of dust on them, and uh, I would just wonder them. And uh, these were Wilson baseballs, which was, which were the ones used in Cuba. Uh, although the name in Cuba for a hardball was una pelota poli, una pelota poli. Why? Because the first ones to be brought to Cuba were Spalding, and Spalding was distorted into poli. But the ones we call pelotas polis were Wilson's. So I remember those, uh, those balls. Uh, I played with my father a little bit, but it was not as it is here that your father had to introduce you to baseball. That, that, that was not an expectation. In, in Hispanic families, this, this, this relationship between fathers and sons uh, is different. Uh, the father is is an authority beyond everything. And, uh, but he would play, he had been a terrific ball player, better than I ever was, uh, and I was pretty good, but he was, he was terrific. He played in, in Sugar Mill Baseball, uh, which was the local team from Cuba. So those are some of my memories. I could, I could go on. Uh, I remember going to the stadium, it must have been the 55 season, and the, the great pitcher for my Havana Reds was uh, Wilmer, 
Vinegar Bend Maizel. He was, a, to me, a huge man, a left-hander. And I remember going to the stadium and, and, and walking in, in, uh, near the, the locker room and seeing him, seeing him come out in the resplendent uniform, pinstripe, just like the Philadelphia Phillies of the Havana Reds and being awe. And then, you know, pitchers, even here until the 60s, warmed up before the game in front of the dugout. Yes. And I remember standing there and watching him uh, warm up and wondering how can a human being throw a ball that hard, that fast? And uh, he had a terrific season in, in Cuba that, uh, that winter. I think he struck out 205 batters. This is a 73 season game. Uh, the 72, 72 game season. So, uh, yeah, I remember him. You know, it's interesting, Roberto, because uh, in, in, in listening to you talk, uh, you know, I grew up in Puerto Rico myself. I mean, baseball was also very important uh, uh, in Puerto Rico. Uh, at that time, it was still, you know, the, the, the Winter League was very, you know, important simply because you had many American, quote-unquote, yeah. American players going down to the island, plus all the uh, professional Puerto Rican players returning to the island to play. Um, but... When you mentioned the, the, the Sugar Mill uh, League, uh, you know, I, I'd like for you to speak a little bit more about that because I've always been fascinated by that. The fact that these most Americans of sports takes hold in foreign countries, in a foreign country, Cuba, or what have you. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, the, the, the importance of the, 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 the sugar mills, the, the sugar production, and the fact that you know there is a season and th there's a very strict season with a dead season. Yeah, tiempo muerto. Yes, that's right. Yeah, uh, and I always suspected that you know that had a lot to do with the fact that we had those uh, it, milk leagues. What, what happened uh, uh, was that baseball was incorporated into Cuban culture and life as Cuba was becoming independent, uh, and uh, the first games well, in the 1860s, uh, right towards the end of the Ten-Year War. Uh, and uh, the uh, sugar mills uh, began to, to grow. Uh, they were owned, many, by American uh, firms. And these sugar mills became, created sugar mill towns, batelles. And uh, so it, it, it was made for... Uh, for uh, each of those towns having a baseball uh, uh, team representing the town and the sugar mill and paid, of course, by the owners of the sugar mill uh, who uh, invested sometimes in bringing great American players later. This is later. But in the, in the 19th century, also baseball was associated with patriotism, that is, with breaking away from Spain. Baseball was American, was democratic, it was modern, as opposed to bullfighting, which was barbarous. Uh, and uh, it, it was thought so also in Spain by many people. But in, in the, the Cubans who were fighting for independence uh, followed baseball against uh, uh, bullfighting. When I, when I tell Cubans uh, that there was bullfighting in Cuba, they say, ha! Ah, you must be kidding. There's never been any bullfighting in Cuba. 
Yes, my friend, there were two files of bullfighting rings in Havana. Uh, and uh, they had a fairly large following. And bullfighters on their way to more important venues in Mexico would stop and do a little season in, in, in Havana. Uh, and, uh, but when the Americans took over in 1898 after the so-called Spanish-American War, which we like to call Spanish-Cuban-American War, uh, uh, they abolished uh, bullfighting, which was, for, for, was to them even worse than for Cubans. It was horrendous. They also abolished, uh, and it never came back. I mean, it disappeared from Cuban uh, consciousness. They also abolished cockfighting, but that they couldn't do away with. It's still <laughs> it's it's harder still, to manage. Yeah. 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 It's still very big in Cuba, even today. Yeah. It's more so, difficult to hide, hide the bull than uh, a yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> bigger, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, uh, because of this, these factors, it was also, I discovered, at the moment in which Cuban literature was coming in its own, on its own, and some of the ball players were writers. Uh, Wenceslao Galvez y del Monte, who wrote and published in 1889 the first history of Cuban baseball, mm -hmm. 1889, Wenceslao was a minor novelist, poet, and the shortstop for the Almendares Blues. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, this is what made me write the book. I mean, once I discovered that literature, and in addition, music. music Cuban music was coming into its own in the 1870s when the first games were, were being written about. In Cuba, the first danzón, which is the first Cuban kind of music, was was uh, uh, Alturas de Simpson, which was uh, played in Matanzas in the 1870s. The Matanzas is just east of, uh, of Havana. So there you have these components of Cuban culture, patriotism, politics, literature, uh, and music, and baseball. They all came together. And how, how did Cuban baseball, the history of Cuban baseball, how did that develop relative to what was going on here? Was there, when you were watching baseball in the 50s, was there an awareness of this, of, you know, baseball here in the earlier times that you're talking about? And baseball in the 1880s and 1890s was kind of in its infancy here too. You know, what, what Not was quite. Way? No, baseball really came in, in, into its own here during the Civil War in the 1880s. A little earlier, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, as a fan in the 1940s and 50s, um, only at the, in the late 60s did I really become aware of the major leagues when they began to broadcast to Cuba the World Series. And of course, American major league teams have been coming to Cuba to train since the 1920s. Mm -hmm. uh, off and on, but uh, mostly on. Uh, so in Havana, people had more of a... But in the provinces, and most Cuban fans just cared about Cuban baseball, not about uh, uh, American baseball. Uh, and what the, uh, what the American players who came did in Cuba, not what they had done playing for Rochester or Syracuse or a place like that. What, what, what is that? Yeah, I, 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 I see the same thing happening in Puerto Rico again in the 70s and the 80s. I mean, uh, American baseball, it was something that was played in the United States. Yeah, yeah. You know, what was played in Puerto Rico was Puerto Rican baseball. Yeah. baseball. And, and now we have a situation where there is, I mean, you know, Cuba, since the late 1950s, very different path politically yeah. than, than uh, Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And Puerto Rican baseball is very much integrated into baseball here, yeah. right? And, and you know, if you're a young person growing in Puerto Rico, you're you, you 
get signed through the draft, right? Yeah. Because it's part of the United States. Whereas if you're in you know, Venezuela... But, but, but baseball has declined in Puerto Rico. It has. Yes. Because uh, there is a greater interest in basketball. There mm -hmm. is a, a professional basketball league that has a large following in Puerto Rico. Uh, and so the Puerto Rican league, even, there was even a season in which it didn't play. Uh, there was no, no season uh, uh, at all. This was, you know, as opposed to particularly the 40s and early 50s when the Puerto Rican baseball was, was superb. Yeah. And, and, and some uh, American players from the Little League, Willard Brown mostly, I don't know if you remember Willard Brown, ese hombre, he was known in Puerto Rico as that man. <laughs> this guy hit 20 some home runs in a 50 game season or 60 games. I mean, he, he was, he's in the Hall of Fame now. And he was one of those who, token players who were given a cup of coffee after Jackie Robinson with the Browns and they you know, played a few games and they sent him back to the minor. This guy was a superb ball player. Well, in Puerto Rico, he, he's a god in Puerto Rico, even in the memory of the, the, the older ones. The, the, the fellow I mentioned before we started speaking, Pancho Coimbre, uh, played a little bit in this country for the, for the New York Cubans. The New York Cubans didn't have just Cubans, they had Latin Americans. Yeah. Uh, and Coimbra's uh, claim to fame is that he, for two or three entire seasons, he didn't strike out a single time mm. in the Puerto Rican League. <laughs> they just couldn't strike him out. Which is, again, I mean, w what is interesting about these leagues is that these were leagues with, you know, professional quality players. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, I talk about this a lot in this, in this book and also in another book I'm working on now, that the notion that all the best players in the world are playing in the major leagues. In the 1940s, that was, no. or 50s, and certainly earlier, that wasn't the case at all, even in the United States. And of course, there was racial discrimination, but even then, there were PCL. Was, there were players who went back and forth, who didn't, it just make sense economically. Oh. Would you rather play for the San Francisco Seals or the St. Louis Browns? And I'm showing my provincial yeah. San Franciscanism here, but you know, it, and, and that's gotten concentrated today, but Cuba remains, you know, there are obviously there are players, we'll talk about this later, but there are players who, get here from Cuba, make the big impact. We yeah. saw this, obviously, as yeah. recently as the World Series, but it remains a little more isolated than the rest of the baseball world, even than Japan or Korea. Yeah. No, the, uh, the major leagues didn't have all the great players because, of course, there was a, the Negro Leagues. Yeah. Uh, and, and baseball, there were, uh, there were great Latin American players, even white Latin American players, who didn't come to this country, to this country and, and, and make it. Uh, and also, it may not. I'm, I'm wondering if you are a star in Havana, are you better off on a, on a personal level being a star in Havana or, say, being a fourth outfielder with the Chicago White Sox? Well, that happened actually to Americans too in the 50s. Um, some of the marginal players in the major leagues uh, preferred uh, not to exceed the number of. Uh, uh, years or something in the in, in the majors to be able to play in the, in the winter league because in the winter league in Cuba, first of all they were paid more than in the major leagues, and number two they didn't have to pay taxes on it. Right. They, you know they were paid. Uh, let's say they were paid fifteen or hundred dollars a month. That was unheard of. Professional players here in the major leagues were making four or five thousand dollars a year, so they would rather do well. And the Cuban players in the fifties, not the. Stars and Inosio and so on, but the, for them, the baseball season was the Cuban winter season, yeah. playing for Havana or for Armendares or Mariano. And, and, and a similar reason, there were many 
Caribbean players who would come to the States and prefer to play in the minor leagues because they get paid more yeah. than if they yeah. played in the major yeah. leagues. Yeah. And, and this is an issue today where the, the lower minors are filled through with Dominican players who don't have a future. Yeah. And they're kind of exploited because oh, kind you know, the, of. Well, the, they're exploited the, mercilessly. The, the, the dream of making the millions of dollars, but instead they're the filler, and the kid from like American college is the prospect. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Not only that, but then when those Dominican players are released, they become part of uh, the undocumented. Because, yes. Uh, yeah. you know, uh, and they have great baseball games here in New York with some of these players. I bet. Yeah. You know, because they still, they still want to play baseball. Yeah. 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 No. No. That that is a, a semi-pro uh, type level. Yeah. Oh yes. That is that is a problem. I, uh, when I was writing my book, uh, I, I decided to go back to baseball. I think I say that in the book. Uh, that is, I had, I had played college, I had played semi-pro, but then, you know, I got married, went to graduate school and so forth, and I began to play softball like everybody else. But when I began to write the, the book, I said, I want to go back to real baseball. And I discovered that there is in this country a senior yes. baseball league. Senior means men over... 30. Mm. So, I mean, the guys in their early 30s, the pitchers could still bring it. And I joined the team and played for five years in my middle to late 50s. Yeah. And uh, sort of held my own. I didn't play catcher much. I occasionally played catcher, but my arm is gone. Uh, I played the old man's position, first base. But, but I you think, actually hit before first base. Yeah, yeah but I hit. I hit. I, I mean, I, I didn't hit a lot, but I hit. And uh, I still have my good hands and to pick it up and so forth. I enjoyed it tremendously, tremendously. And the guys there, I mean, it was real uniforms, um, umpires in, in dressed in blue, uh, everything. Yeah, I, I'll never forget. You may have to say uh, this guy getting a hit and running towards first base and yelling, this is better than sex. <laughs> <laughs> Keep that in. <laughs> But I think, I mean, I, I'm having this discussion now with my, my older son, the baseball part of the discussion, um, because he's a senior in high school. He's a pretty good ball player. Uh, he's a pitcher. And he's applying to colleges, and as he's doing this, he's, you know, will he, the question of will he play in college is, you know, is a big part of this. And he is, you know, he's being recruited, as a, and he's, he's made his decision about where he wants to go, and, you know, see if he gets in, and they want him to play in the baseball team. But one of the things I said to him, and this speaks to what you just said, is that when you take off the uniform, I played in high school. I wasn't really good enough to play beyond that. And we lost playoffs. We had to, you know. And then when you turn that uniform in, when you take it off for the last time, it's difficult. Yeah. And if you can prolong it, even if, you know, you're not, you know he's not going to play beyond college, but if you can have some fun, wear it for a few more years, you have the rest of your life not to do it. Right. Yeah. I know. I know. That's what you, what, what you, what you mean. So I went back uh, uh, to get a feel for the game as I was writing the book. And I remember the first time I went to a practice. Somebody hit a pop-up, and I said, by God, that thing is high. <laughs> I had forgotten how yeah. high a pop-up can go in, in, in a baseball game. Yeah. In softball, it's, it's nothing. Ooh, it's heavier, it's doesn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. Well, I wonder if we could, speaking of, I'm trying to make a metaphor here, but I'm not going to, but I wonder if we could change gears a little bit, Carlos, and, and talk to you um, about pop-ups going out of control here, which is that we've had this kind of shock to the American political system on November 8th, uh, and... There's been a lot in the media and in the political world that I've seen about and that I've written about how this affects domestic politics and the future of our country. And on the international setting, we've heard a lot about Europe, NATO, Russia, and of course the, the Mexico because of this wall that's, you know, uh, that 
But I'm wondering, what, is this, what does the Trump presidency mean for, for Cuba, for the Caribbean region? What are your thoughts? Uh, we don't know. We don't know because as with everything else, uh, there are no specifics beyond building a wall, uh, canning NAFTA. Uh, There are no specifics. Um, Now that an administration is beginning to take place, uh, we still don't know because we still don't have a definitive um, commerce secretary designation, uh, not even a treasury secretary. Uh, so, 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 so it's hard to really uh, put our finger on what may uh, happen in the f- coming four years. Um, but we do know uh, that given the discontent that there is with all of these free trade agreements, namely, number one, NAFTA, but not the only one, um, that there will be attempts to renegotiate. Uh, and, you know, quite as a sketch, uh, the discontent is not, not only coming from some segments of the United States uh, um, political system, social system, uh, but also in Mexico. Uh, there are, there's also discontent uh, on the Mexican side uh, regarding NAFTA. Is it enough to trash it? I doubt it. Uh, will Congress uh, allow uh, a, a complete reworking of NAFTA in a way that will not only serve the interest of the incoming administration, but also the interest of the uh, uh, constituents of you know congressmen and women, uh, we don't know. You know, it, 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 but there is a lot of in the uncertainty. There is a lot of fear. That that is something we do know. That because of the pronouncements that have been made throughout the campaign, uh, uh, there is fear about the changes that may uh, come to pass. What about the Cuba deal? Well, I mean, that is, that is, that is just going to turn this over to Marco Rubio and say, "Do what you want with it." Uh, that is also up in the air uh, because we have seen, uh, given the the, uh, the loosening of restrictions, that there is a, a, a pent up demand to interact with Cuba and to interact with Cuba beyond the the, the cultural exchanges, beyond the the, the uh, this this furtive. Uh, Tourism. Uh, there is a desire to really engage uh, Cuba, the Cuban people, uh, and the Cuban economy. Uh, that is actually uh, a desire in the United States that is centered critically both in terms of agriculture. You know, they see Cuba as a great uh, market for uh, American agricultural products. Also, manufacturing uh, because of you know the heavy equipment that they may be needed. Uh, and investors, uh, you know, Cuba is in great need of physical infrastructural investment, and uh, those are, you know, three big interests that you know can point to uh, a, a real estate developer uh, and say, hey, listen, uh, there are opportunities here uh, for the United States. But the United, the Cuban uh, government has not uh, reciprocated, and in fact, in my view, since uh, Obama. Uh, on that 17th of December, which was very significant for Cuba, but it was the 17th of December, you know why? It's the Dia de San Lazaro, mm-hmm. 17th of San Lazaro's day, Baba Luaye, one of the Cuban orishas, so the, the Cubans saw as a sign that prayer. But since then, actually, repression has increased in Cuba. In the last two, three years, still has increased. The Damas de Blanco, which are these 
for women who dressed in frogs and white, but they're mostly black. Their wives and sisters and mothers of political prisoners march on Sundays and they're beaten by mobs organized by the government uh, regularly. This guy, Pariñas, who's been a black, who's been on, on several hunger strikes, as, or one of his demands is that they stop this beating of these uh, uh, people. 80% of the Cuban economy is in the hands of the military, of the military. I just read of this guy, Garcia Frias, a general who has a thoroughbred farm near Havana where he makes uh, millions of dollars raising thoroughbred horses that he sells in auctions to people who come and he brings them in and so forth. He doesn't pay any taxes. He's a cuenta propista. <laughs> he doesn't pay taxes. So the, the cuenta propista are the people who can work on their own. So uh, 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 I think that in that respect, Obama gave away the store. I have to stop here and say something that I know is going to sound self-promoting, but ever since Obama gave me in the White House the National Humanities Medal, he has become the greatest president in the history of the United States. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very, very much in, in favor. That was the turning point? That was the turning point. That was, that was the, <laughs> I was looking for that historical yeah. thing, but that helped. Yeah, yeah. But, but what I mean is that I think he gave away the store. I mean, just to have as part of his legacy that he was uh, sort of opening up Cuba, what is it, a town right. that you're opening but up? But let me, I, I want to ask for both of you this, because, you know, a, a premise of Amer or a tenet of American foreign policy, and it's not a partisan tenet, is that unfree countries, you know, and there are many of them, one way we can make unfree countries freer is by engagement, right? That's the, and, and that was certainly the policy in the Soviet Union. It doesn't always work, but that's the tenet, right? Certainly the policy, it's been in China, certainly in, in countries, there are exceptions. North Korea is an exception. But not Vietnam. Not Vietnam. <laughs> but that's the tenet, right? Right. And, and I'm wondering, is, so, so I'm wondering on the one hand, a, a boycott stops that from happening. But now we have this unusual situation where we have, on the one hand, we have the Obama-Cuba deal, and then we have the 2016 election here, and uh, where the, uh, you know, the book I wrote before this is about U.S. democracy promotion. And a key part of democracy promotion has always been modeling, right? Showing the world that our system is, is the best by the freedoms that we enjoy and by our economy, this and that. I think we're out of that business right now. I mean, mm -hmm. I, and I think we're now looking at rollback of democracy in the United States. I mean, that's what I'm afraid of. I mean, a lot of other Americans are afraid of that. So I'm wondering is, in that context, how can engagement, I mean, what's, what's the underlying principle that engagement will help Cuba become more democratic? It seems, even, it seems the tenet is much weaker. But Cuba has been uh, engaged with uh, powerful democracies like... But I mean with the U.S. specifically. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. With Canada and Europe and Japan and all that, and it hasn't had an impact. So you, it would have to be an ex exceptionalism that is that it, because it is the United States, it would have that. That's why I don't think it is uh, the modeling part that would make an effect uh, uh, in, in Cuba in terms of internal Cuban policies. Uh, and that is why you would see uh, elements within the government really maintaining control you know, fierce control over resources in Cuba. Uh, every, every, every instance over the past 20, 30 years, uh, when Cuba, the Cuban government has allowed some liberalization, there has been an immediate backlash uh, because the government is afraid of that impact that it could have uh, in terms of uh, greater demands from the population, pent up demand for freedom and consumer groups and cultural uh, contributions. So 
what may be happening now is that if you have a chief executive in the figure of Donald Trump that says that he is a great negotiator and he's going to exact really difficult concessions from a trading partner, that may just make it easier for the Cuban government to say, well, we don't want you here. What is this do for us? Exactly. Except that uh, given the economic situation, and particularly the uh, demise of Venezuela uh, as a potential source of uh, resources most important to uh, oil, they may not be in a position to do that anymore. So uh, this, this is a factor that is very uh, important. That they may be forced, uh, they, you know, it, it might lead to violence. Mm -hmm. uh, they may be forced to, uh, to make concessions, and then there are going to be people in, the, in, in, in that inner circle who are going to be uh, quite unwilling to do anything mm -hmm. uh, because they, they're going to lose uh, the control, the control that they have. They have all the power and all, all the resources. So, so given this, what we can expect, again, not knowing what may be coming yeah. out of Washington, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uncertainty is, is, is what is ruling uh, at present time. Uh, but what may we anticipate is that a need for greater investment in Cuba uh, a reluctance to liberalize the economy and the society and the political system in Cuba. Uh, so that may imply further repression as you ask for more investment, if not from the United States, maybe from Canada, maybe from Europe, a Europe that is also kind of, you know, uh, cracking up. Yeah. Uh, uh, and perhaps, perhaps, if NAFTA doesn't work out too well, maybe with Mexico uh, and, and Central America and other countries. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a very tenuous uh, situation. And, you know, to go back to your point, Lincoln, about modeling, it's interesting that what, what is left out of many of the, uh, the debates that have taken place regarding TPP, uh, what uh, is TPP? Uh, the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, okay. uh, the, the trade deal yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, with uh, the, the Pacific Basin countries, is that that is an initiative that also comes from a great power. And the fact that they, the United States was investing also a lot of its great power capital to allow for greater trade throughout this very important region of the world, possibly the future of the world, mm -hmm. uh, uh, given that you know, still uh, uh, they're further ahead than, say, Africa in terms of development, um, and very important geopolitically, obviously. Uh, so the fact that the United States was expanding a little bit of its own political capital to make this uh, partnership move forward, this great par partnership move forward, was perhaps an indication of its stature, its statute as a great power. Uh, the fact that you have another administration that doesn't think that at present the United States is such a great power and therefore cannot expand political capital in that sense uh, makes you wonder if we are going to go into a more mercantilist uh, trade policy, uh, and that could, you know, bode very badly uh, for the United States, I would say, and for countries in the Caribbean and Latin America. Yeah. I, um, it's impossible to predict that uh, at this point. I mean, uh, from my point of view, uh, given uh, Trump's demeanor. Uh, it is very worrisome. Uh, but at the same time, one has to hope that the pressures of the office uh, and the checks and balances that um, 
part of the core of his uh, country's greatness will uh, will uh, lead him to, to, to well I mean, that's that's the hope I mean I'm not sure how much of that hope I have but but I mean, and it's not just here but I think in general yeah I mean that's that's the question that we'll see answered in the next you know couple of years and that is also why we have to pay attention to what happens in Congress right I mean we have definitely the chief executive in the White House with this more uh, mercantilist attitude. But is that the attitude that is going to predominate in the House of Congress? Uh, you'd well, certainly it's also an issue where he, he really disagrees with the congressional leadership of his own political party who does control yeah. both houses of Congress. Now, the question, as I, this, what I would, my sense of things is that Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan and these guys, they realize that what we learned from the voters over the last 12 months is that Donald Trump has more power than they do. So they, you know, they're going to have to pick their fight. Yeah, well, the, worrisome, the worrisome thing here is not only Trump. It's the 60 million people who voted for him. I mean, so there are a lot of Americans who, uh, who voted for him. I mean, that is very worrisome. Yeah. The, 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 this is true. This is true. But it, it kind of reminds me of a similar situation we were in uh, eight years ago, specifically four years ago, when uh, uh, definitely Barack Obama won solidly. He won... Uh, more than you know, any, any you know his opponent. Uh, yet congressional leaders were saying, "Well, you know, I also got elected by a majority of right. the voters in my district, mm -hmm. and therefore I will uh, push with." Uh, no, with and that's and that is the that is how the Constitution is written, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the, the I think the specific challenge we're looking at this, and this is pretty off topic, but what I would focus on here is. Not, I mean, when Mitch McConnell, these guys back in 2009, said, you know, we're just going to stop Obama from doing anything. Obama responded by that by being stopped. I mean, he was stymied. He did some things, not as much as he would like. My concern here is that what you will see is that Trump's beginning to erode those institutional uh, bulwarks against presidential power when he doesn't like what they're doing. Mm -hmm. That's where I see this as dangerous. Mm -hmm. So rather than ju then just stopping him, because, I mean, John McCain said on television, we are not just there yesterday. We are not going to do waterboarding. I don't give a damn what the president says. Well, turning that thought into an action is very different now than it was four years ago because of the style that this president is bringing with him to the White House. I have to tell you uh, that, that I uh, have difficulty explaining to my friends in Latin America and Europe is the electoral system here in this country. This business of the electoral colleges and, and the fact that Hillary won what is the reason behind that system in the United States? Could you explain Yeah, it? I will explain it to you, but let me just first say that, that, that because this is a baseball podcast, that winning the popular vote and not the Electoral College is like getting more hits in a baseball game. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Getting more hits and from losing the game. Right, it usually helps, doesn't always. Yeah. The, the, real, the, the, origins, good, uh, the, yeah. the origins of this is it was the deal that made the Constitution possible because the small states were worried that you know New York, Virginia, a few others would just push through whatever they wanted. It's the same, it's the same concern that led to the United States Senate, which is not based on one person, one vote. Now, that was in the 1780s. And if you look at that historically, there's some sense to that. The problem is we're not in the 1780s anymore. It's the 21st century. In my view, in the 21st century, ordinary American voters, right, they vote based on a lot of different Identities. It might be an economic issue, or an issue of religiosity, a relig an issue mm. of race or ethnicity, national origin, region. You know, they don't. Your state doesn't mean anything anymore. But that was the primal identity 
So we still have this residual based on a prim primal good. identity. That's a good point. But so there is a historical issue there. There's a historical reason there. The, the, and and my view, I mean, if my personal opinion is I would just have the popular vote. I mean, that's how I would like to see the president elected. But I don't. I also understand the history. There's another problem here, which gets less attention, which is that, in addition to this weird thing where you could win um, Texas, you could win California, you could win te Texas by one vote, you know, and get all the electoral votes, or Ohio by one vote, and that in fact, probably 60,000 votes swinging in this election out of 120 million cast, and Hillary Clinton wins an electoral college landslide, right? I mean, so there is that. That's the first issue that, that you're right, yeah. concerned about. The second issue is this. Electoral votes aren't awarded on principle of one person, one vote. So that's that's so it's it's just axiomatically it's undemocratic. And the reason for that is this: just to pick a state, but you could say Alaska, Wyoming, any of the small states, roughly seven hundred fifty-eight hundred thousand people, right? How many electoral votes? Do you know? Three. Three. One for each member of the house, which is one plus two for the Senate. So if you live in Wyoming, it's roughly two hundred fifty thousand electoral votes uh, in you know residents per electoral vote. In California, how many electoral votes does California have? 55, right? 53 members of the House and two members. So, so, so the ratio of a, between those two states is about 18 to 1, 54, but you know, 18 to 1. The ratio of population is not 18 to 1 at all. It's more like 50 to 1. And, and the reason is those two extra votes, right? So in, a, so, so in an election like this, it probably wouldn't have mattered. But if you just took away those two, this is my compromise solution. If you just took away the two, the two extra votes, you could still have an electoral college, and at least it'd be based on one person, one vote. Yeah. But that's the problem. And maybe, maybe on that note, we can get back to baseball. to baseball for a second. Um, I'm gonna try to balance here. So, from the time that you we you discussed when we first started talking about baseball in Cuba, when you were you know a young Cuban baseball fan, to today, one of the the big changes in in baseball in the United States is. There was a, originally some Cubans who came in kind of in the, the late pre-Castro days, you know, the kind of, and then there was a period where everyone kind of knew that, wow, these Cubans are great at baseball, but they don't get to see them much. And the last, I don't know, dozen or so years, maybe more now, 20 years, that's really changed. And we have, you know, we had a World Series where he wasn't, I mean, I don't think anyone expected him to give that, two, that expected him to give up that two-run home run, but, you know, mm -hmm. Araldo Chapman was the most sought-after closer at the trade deadline. He again is probably the most sought after closer. I mean, Kenley Jones is. is a great pitcher too, but you know, at, in the free agent market, uh, Yohannes Cespedes is is the most sought after non pitcher in the free agent market. Yeah. Both these guys are going to sign huge contracts, and and you know they've demonstrated their worth relative to you know other major league ball players. What is what What are your thoughts on this? How does well? Uh, first of all, may I uh, a little footnote as to why he's called Chapman. Yes, please. You have to know a little bit of Caribbean demographics. Uh, in the early 20th century, uh, Cuban's uh, sugar industry needed uh, uh, a, a workforce, a large workforce, because sh sugar uh, uh, harvesting uh, needs a lot of, uh, of workers. And they were imported uh, seasonally uh, from Jamaica, Haiti, some even Puerto Rico and Panama. And this is why you have names like uh, Chapman. They, he probably, his, his ancestors were Jamaicans. I said seasonally because they were brought this season and then uh, uh, 
they emigrated uh, to the cities as poor, and then they brought a new batch because they were cheaper. And uh, so there were large numbers of Jamaicans and Haitians particularly, and this is why uh, you have uh, the one who just defected, uh, Luis Robert, Robert, that must be a Haitian. And Chapman, obviously of Jamaican. Earlier, you must remember uh, Tony Taylor, yes. the Cuban infielder, he was also of Jamaican. And Rafael Noble, probably uh, uh, Jamaican or, or Haitian, and so forth and so on. And just a little. Uh, yeah. uh, the flow of Cubans uh, to the majors has several uh, eras. Esteban Bellán played in the, was then the major leagues in the 1880s. He was a Cuban from Matanzas. Uh, he uh, played at Fordham, and that's where he learned his baseball and, uh, and played in the majors. Then, in the late, in, in the teens, there were several, uh, Rafael Almeida and Armando Marsans were signed by the Cincinnati Reds. There was a, 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 an outcry. Some Americans had no idea about uh, Latin American uh, demographics, and they, they think that uh, everyone is, is black. I mean, uh, they, they, uh, you could tell by their last names that this Almeida and Marsans. Marsans was obviously of Catalan origin because of the last name, and Almeida of Galician origin. Uh, because there are ma uh, Spanish, uh, Spain is a country you, you know divided in things. Uh, then in the late teens, uh, Miguel Angel Gonzalez and Adolfo Luque. The Pride of Havana were uh, signed uh, and, and, and had substantial yes. careers in the major. In the 30s, uh, Joe Cambria, a scout for the Washington Senators, began to sign Cubans uh, by the boatload. I have to, uh, this is a long story and I don't want to take up all the time, but uh, the Cuban Amateur League, which provided these players, was apartheid. In Cuba, in the Amateur League, which was a, a very, very good league, was apartheid until 1959. Only whites could play. Where did the blacks play? They played the sugar mill teams. They played in the semi-pro, which were teams owned by businesses and, and, and so forth. But Cambria tapped that, that apartheid league with white Cubans. And uh, in 1940, was it uh, the Washington Senators came within a couple of games of, of winning the American League against Detroit, who won it. Uh, 45. Yeah, 45. It was, you know, uh, they had two or three Cubans in the roster, the, the, the senators. They were not, uh, they could not be drafted because they were not American citizens right. to go to the war. Yeah. They were white, they were black. So that's the, uh, the, the flow. Then the flow begins after the war, or continues. And Inoso is important uh, because he was the first black Cuban to be signed. And he, uh, black, uh, question about him. Yeah. And uh, he was black, he, he was signed by Bill Beck. Beck as in Wreck. Yeah. Who also signed Larry Doby. Larry Doby, yeah, yeah, Satchel Page. I mean, Satchel Page first and Larry Doby, who played for the Newark Eagles, and, and Minoso, who played for the Q New York Cubans. And, uh, and uh, uh, so that opened the doors slightly. I always say Jackie Robinson didn't break the coral barrier. He just pried it open because the teams did not sign the best players around regardless of color. They continued. The, the Red Sox didn't have a black player until 1958. Pumpsy Green. From the Bay Area, Pumpsy Green. That's yeah. a rec center named after him. Uh, Elston Howard was signed by the Yankees in 54. 
Uh, Willard Brown, who was a great black player, who legendary player in, in Puerto Rico, played a couple of games for the Browns. And also with the informal thing, you couldn't have more than three. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. So yeah. Even if there you was a quota. There was a quota. The, the Giants who won the 1954 uh, championship were the first to have an old black outfield. They had uh, Thompson, Sam Thompson, uh, uh, um, Willie Mays, Willie Mays, Monty Irving, Sam and, and, and Monty Irving. Right. Yeah, uh, and they also had Sam Noble, a Cuban black, as a catcher. Uh, maybe he had already uh, gone, but you couldn't go beyond that. And the Dodgers, uh, if, you if you read one of my favorite books, The Boys of Summer. Uh, one of the best baseball yeah, books ever. Great books. Yeah, yeah he, he talks about the fact that when, when the Dodgers had out there Junior Gilliam and Mundo Amoros and Jackie Robinson, they were getting to be uh, uh, Roy Campanella, uh, Don Newcomb. It was getting yeah. to be a lot too, too many. But they were winning the pennant almost every year, so yeah, it was yeah, that. Right, <laughs> it wasn't that, yeah. So what I mean is that the, uh, then Cuban players began, to, black Cuban players began to get. Carlos Paula who was a very powerful outfielder for the, uh, for the Senators and who should have been the Rookie of the Year, but it was given to Gil McDougall. As, <laughs> he hit 299 as a rookie. He was a big, strapping black guy. Uh, and then eventually, you know, in the late 50s, uh, Miguel Cuellar, who then had a, a great season, great seasons with the Orioles. Also, uh, yes. uh, who, and uh, Elio Chacon, who was really born in Venezuela. Uh, and, and so forth. So th there is then a wave of Cuban until 59, 60. Oh, keep going, because I want to ask about later players, but keep going. Yeah, and then it stops. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, Panchon Herrera, uh, who, who played for the Phillies, uh, who had one of the last who had played in the Negro Leagues, who played for the Kansas City Monarchs. They interviewed him. Huge black guy, uh, first baseman. Uh, and, 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 and so, but that, that was stopped by. by uh, uh, coming of the uh, of the Castro dictatorship, but didn't allow them out. Then there is a, a separate flow that comes later when uh, René Arocha defects the picture, and uh, and then eventually more and more and more. I want to go back to the immediate. So Tony Perez, Tony Perez, yes, and and Bert Campaneris. Yes, Campaneris. I want to ask you a question about Bert Campaneris. Yes, because I grew up in the Bay Area, and and. I'm just old enough to remember those A's teams that won every yeah. year. I thought Bart Campanaris was one of the best players. Well, yes, he, he was. was a fantastic yeah. player. And we, periodically there'll be a Hall of Fame discussion about Davy Concepcion going to the Hall of Fame. Like a giant kid. So yeah. that's a great player, too. But in my view, Campy was better. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering, why is he so... And he had that weird moment where he came back to the Yankees yes. in 1983 and I hit over 300 yeah. as like a third yeah. base, but you know, kind of utility yeah. infielder type. Yeah. He's... And, and, and there were... You know, there was the incident in the 72 playoffs. Um... So that may have hurt his, I wasn't old enough to pay attention, that may have hurt the coverage he was getting, but why is he never in these discussions? I, I think know, he's a I fantastic he a great, player. Uh, uh, he was also a great base great stealer. Great base stealer, he was a, the catalyst uh, of that team. He played every position. Yeah, he played. Going back to the played every position, Cesar Tovar yes, did it yes. too, uh, for the Venezuela. Um, this goes back to the Negro Leagues. In the Negro Leagues, players had to be versatile, play several positions. Why? Because the Negro Leagues could not have a large roster. It was expensive. Every player you added, you had to feed him, move him around, all that. Right. 
So the players have to learn to play various positions. You know, Willie Mays, who was one of the smartest ball players, oh, yes. you know, I'm ever just, to play I'm the game. I'm reading this magnificent biography. Of oh, the the gamesmith one. I think so. The big one. I'm, I'm more than halfway. It's oh, a really oh, good book. Really, seriously. It's, it's a, and, and I, I have to say, as a, there's two things I really liked about that book that you don't get in other Mays biographies. One, when he plays on the Giants in the '60s, it's a coverage of San Francisco that's not just Summer of Love. I know. It actually gives you a real picture. And the other thing is that. Hirsch spends a lot of attention on Willie McCovey. He's never yeah. discussed. And he taught, you know, and, and they were, Willie McCovey, Willie Mays came from similar backgrounds. McCovey was a little bit younger. And you get a real feel for him. Who yeah, who was a, who, a huge one. He was very shy, apparently. Yeah, yeah. but, uh, you know, an incredible hitter. I mean. but, but what I was saying about Mays was when Mays was a kid, his father, who had also been a star, but pre-Jackie yeah, Robinson, yeah. you know, a Negro League star. Well, not quite a, a player, player, but a player. He taught him to play every position. Yes. And he, for that reason. And then Mays, that's why he was always thinking, think one or two steps ahead of everyone on the field, because he was, you know, from, anyway, we were just back to camp. Well, Roberto Clemente, right. uh, people say, why, why didn't he play shortstop with the arm he had? Well, because when he was signed in Puerto Rico for the first team, the owner and manager of the team was the shortstop. <laughs> he wasn't going to put there. <laughs> that, that matters. <laughs> like one Marshall when he went to play for the Air Force team. You know. Yeah, well, what's this, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, so, so then, the, 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 yeah, Campanetti is a, a forgotten uh, a great uh, player, yeah, he was, uh, something else, yeah, um, but you were asking me about uh, the various waves yeah, of so continue Cuban, with that, yeah. uh, you know, Mignoso again is important, but in a way that I have to uh, qualify, uh, he became he became one of the go-go kids for the Chicago White Sox. He stole bases. He ran around and that. Uh, this he was playing to the stereotype. The stereotype among Americans is that the Cubans played wild baseball and the Negro Leagues uh, also stealing bases, running around. Mm-mm-mm. Negro League baseball, as Cuban baseball, was very cautious small ball baseball. They did that only when they played white teams to uh, satisfy the white fans, in the, uh, you know, by playing up to the stereotype. Right. In Cuba, you did not play recklessly, particularly in a stadium where betting was allowed and people were betting on every pitch. I mean, <laughs> you were playing around with people's money. Right. If you got you caught stealing. Yeah, yeah. You, <laughs> you, you would have a, yeah. Actually, Pancho Coimbra in Puerto Rico, when he started, I just read a marvelous book uh, about Luis Rodriguez Olmo. El Jibarito, a great Puerto Rican player who had a great season in Cuba and in Boston, Venezuela, everywhere. At the beginning, when they played, before the Puerto Rican League was really organized in the late 30s, if you made a great play, pe- people passed the hat around in the, in the stands and gave you the money. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and in Cuba, they threw the money on the field. If you made a great catch in center field, you would come back, oh, there will be money. <laughs> That's a good tip. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good incentive. Yes. Yeah. Not as great an incentive as uh, as the North Korean soccer team when they returned once having lost. The coach was put in a concentration camp mm. and the players in jail. Wow. <laughs> you better win. <laughs> but, Roberto, you know, speaking about playing to stereotypes, um, the, 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 that's a very interesting point because... With, with the influx of Cuban players nowadays, going back to you know, this flow of, of players, um, you know, again, there has always been a fascination with Cuba. 
in all facets of life. The United States has had, and the, the American people have had, a fascination with Cuba yeah. for over 100 years, maybe close to 200 years. Oh, yeah. uh, and what do you attribute it to? Uh, the, the, you know, because as you know, we were talking briefly before, you know, how many great Dominican players and you know, the whole uh, farm system in the Dominican Republic has really produced yeah. a, a, a great uh, batch of, uh, of players. Now, focus has been on Cuba, perhaps because of the liberalization that has been hoped for or has been, you know, uh, been attempted. Um, but what is it about Cuban and Cuban players uh, uh, that, that you think sparked them, this imagination and this demand for those players? Well, let me, let me tell you, the, the importance of Cuba and the importance that Cubans feel that they deserve uh, come from the fact that Havana was at the very center of the Spanish Empire. It was the port where the two fleets with which the metropolis communicated with its empire all the way to the Philippines mm-hmm. met every year, uh, assembled, and went back and forth. So Havana was at the center of the world. And it felt that it was at the center of the world. There were there were Oriental uh, items in the in, in the shops of Havana in the mid nineteenth century or eighteenth century, which were brought by the now the Filipinas, this galleon the Filipina that came all the way from the Philippines to the west coast of Mexico, and it traveled all the way to Yucatan and then to Cuba. Uh, so Cuba felt that it was uh, at the center of the empire. And it acted uh, in, in, in such uh, a way. Uh, then Cuba became exceedingly prosperous in the 19th century with the sugar industry, uh, very, very prosperous, and very close to the United States because Spain opened, I think it's 1811, you would have to check, uh, opened. I mean, before that, uh, Spanish colonies, and Cuba was a Spanish colony, could only, could only uh, have trade with Spain after 1811 with the United States, and the United States, uh, Cuba became the principal provider of sugar for the United States, and, and there, was a, there, was, there was a lot of money moving back and, and, and forth, and a lot of Americans and, and so forth. And this is why Americans felt that Cuba should be a state. Uh, yes. uh, uh, the southern uh, states wanted to purchase uh, uh, Cuba. We, we were talking about how, how uh, Cuba began to liberalize, how in fact, yes, the United States did want to purchase Cuba or acquire it and wrest it from the Spanish hands uh, all throughout the 19th century. Uh, that's certainly the Cuba is a big island. Yeah. I think, I think that's... This is what Americans don't realize. That's right. Tiny island. I remember a friend of mine, a medical doctor, who said to me, oh, as you were flying out of Havana, could you see Guantanamo? Excuse me. <laughs> That is 700 miles away. Mm-hmm. If you put the eastern tip of Cuba on Santa Fe, New York, the western part is almost piece of sugar. That's, I think that's, that's part of it. I, think, I don't think people realize that. Yeah. But also, I think with the specific regards to your question about baseball, you know, Cuba is the great unknown. If you're, if you're not, for you it's different. I mean, you're an expert and you're from there, but if you're, a non-Cuban baseball fan, or even a non, especially for non-Latino baseball fan in the United States, that's the magic 
door and we don't know magic curtain we don't know what's behind it you know we can you can get good data on japanese players totally. you can you know you know of course today with college baseball that's all out there but and particularly in the early days of international tournaments these cuban teams that you would barely know the names of the players you'd watch them on tv in the olympics and they would be Fantastic in the, yeah. in the modern era. So Fantastic, but against against amateur teams. I mean, they, they, they once once against good college baseball teams. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, once uh, they allowed professionals in, in in those tournaments, Cuba began to you know sure. win and lose. But nonetheless, right? I mean, yeah. you know, it is it is a country you know like I mean it's, it's one of the countries that produces very top level people yeah. players here, but however, you don't get a sense from beforehand because it's however, Cuba. Lincoln, I, I I've thought about this a lot and. The fact is that none of these Cuban players has burnt the league, as we say in in, uh, in, in Spanish. That is, uh, uh, they have done well. Right. Abreu has done well right. for one season. Cespedes right. has been doing very well. Uh, but he's not Mike Trout. You know, he's a solid hitter. He's not Jose Canseco. No. Who uh, now? Or Jose Fernandez, the late. Uh, yeah. Uh, Canseco had the greatest, I say it there, the greatest season a Cuban player ever had. Now, of course, he may have been. Uh, aided by stimulated himself, yeah. right? But and and Chapman, I mean, you know, he's yeah, Chapman is another dimension. I mean, the fact that he threw one 105 miles an hour, you know, when somebody's throwing 95, you say, Wow, he's throwing that. This guy throws 10 miles an hour more. Yeah. I can't believe these guys can get around and hit it, and they do. Yeah, oh, yeah, if you, yeah, but so you're right. I mean, there hasn't been if you compare it to offhand the Dominican players. Right, who you have that level of superstardom, right? There's no, you know, Pedro Martinez pitcher yeah. or something like that. You're right, but it has been. It's so it takes me back to the point that I was trying to make before, because yes, there's the level of it's not known. We don't know what is behind that curtain, whatever, however we right. want to name that curtain. Uh, but precisely because we don't know, we 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 attribute uh, 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 characteristics. That I wonder if they are there, uh, and you know, again, I, I make the point that perhaps, with the exception of Mexico, there is no other Latin American country that has captured the imagination of the United States as much as Cuba. In general, in general, you're right. I think you're probably right about that. Well, the fact is that Cuban baseball for the last twenty years has been imitating American Major League Baseball, uh, meaning uh, long ball. Mm -hmm. uh, they uh, well, they they went. They discarded the, the metal, uh, the aluminum bat for for a wooden bat. In fact, I think preparing their players to be ready to uh, to move to professional baseball here. But the style uh, of play, I mean, home runs and all of that, uh, is 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 uh, following the major leagues. The major leagues, uh, all these professional sports uh, are geared, including the, the designated hitter, which I don't like at all, uh, to promote scoring. To promote the kind of activity that a non-fan can understand. You know, I had a funny experience with that. I, I happen to agree with you on the DA tour for sure. But I had a funny experience. Um, the Giants were playing the Mets in the one-game play-in game yeah. here, and you know, Noah Syndergaard, Madison Bumgarner. You know, yeah. you know, So, and I'm a Giants fan, and I I couldn't take my kids to school night, but I managed to get two tickets, and I brought a friend of mine who lives in the neighborhood who's a big Yankee fan, and he's been a Yankee fan since the mid '50s. And, and, and we had really good seats. And we, um, and we went to the game, and it was just an extraordinary game. I mean, it was so, every pitch, because you knew these guys, there was no room for error. Somebody could, you know, every pitch, it was super, super close. And 
you know, Giants won, and so that was happy, and we, we left, and, and my friend turns to me and says, man, I've been a baseball game for half a century. That was one of the very best games I saw. And, and then I, um, I went over to his house later in the postseason to watch one of the World Series games. And his wife says, oh, that was so nice of you to, t- you know, to give me your extra ticket to the game. He said it was such a great game, but it, it didn't seem like it was a good game at all. Nobody scored. But she's not a baseball person, you know. But that's—I think you're right. That's what they're trying to. Yeah, yeah. They—they—they they, they want high scoring, and this is why soccer hasn't uh, done as well here as they. Uh, because uh, there is such low scoring in soccer, mm-hmm. where the move in all of these professional sports is to increase scoring, so that they can lure the the fan who's not knowledgeable. Uh, anybody can understand a home run, uh, and. The worst is basketball, where they have had all of these rules. Uh, the twenty-second, uh, you have to shoot. Right, right. You know, a weaker team can slow the ball on the game and have a chance. But if you have to shoot every twenty-second, you can't. Uh, but it doesn't matter. They, they want uh, the game to to, to end with uh, uh, both teams having scored over a hundred points and sort of. The same thing. This is why soccer hasn't gone that far because. People, I mean, soccer games, uh, a two nothing or three nothing games or a blowout. Uh, that's not the way the American fan, I mean, that they are aiming the game. And in baseball, they stopped it at the designated uh, hitter. But we are, we were moving towards having designated hitters for every position. Well, you also saw this just um, last week or so when it was agreed to expand, or they're thinking about expanding. I'm not sure the status of the 26th person on a roster, right? Mm-hmm. And and the reason is that, you know, rather than really force the teams to think about, do I really want to carry 13 pitchers and only three backups? And I'm yeah. gonna, you know, it allows them to add another hitter, right? So so even if you're, you know, it I adds you to I add someone who's just very, there at first bat. I am very fascinated by uh, the following in baseball. Baseball is the only game in which there is no time limit. But you cannot bring back a player once you take him out. So there is a limit on the number of players that you have in a game that potentially could go on for the next century. <laughs> so uh, uh, I noticed, and I was talking to my friends uh, uh, on television uh, about this, that the Cubs carried three catchers. Do you remember? Do you yes. Know? Yeah. Carried three catchers uh, because one of the Venezuelans, they have two Venezuelans, one had an arm, he picked the guy off right. second base, and he threw a bullet to second base. Um, they used to carry three catchers yes. in, the, in the 40s and 50s. And some of those guys could play a little first base. Yeah, but you, you had yeah. it there. But you also only carry 10 pitchers. Yeah, that's the thing. Now you have, you know, the middle inning guy, the eighth inning guy, and all that, so you have right. to have 13 pitchers. But, you have to, but instead of making the player, the management just make a decision, right? I mean, I'm always struck by this. Every other year when the Giants would be in the playoffs, their best player is Buster Posey. Oh, right. Well, he's a terrific player. And, and my view was that, and if you look at the postseason, for the most part, he would catch, you know, Bochi with his approach in the postseason and the, and the days off and the schedule that are built in. Posey would catch every inning of every game, yeah. right? And they would never, even though they had guys like um, Hector Sanchez, who had a little pop in their bats, he always hesitated to use them as a pinch hitter. And my view is, if Posey gets hurt, the Giants are done anyway. Yeah. So they may as well use the catcher, but there is that sense of, you know, one of those players is a backup catcher who people are reluctant to, to use the pinch hitter anyway, which to me doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, the thing, in one game, Madden, who made some decisions in the series, I think, Strange you know, decisions. Yeah, I, think, I think he made bad decisions and won, but uh, with the pitching in the last two games. But in one of the games, he actually 
let's see, took out his, his, uh, his, uh, the catcher who was catching the game. Uh, he pinch hit with the catcher and, uh, and then uh, replaced that pinch hitter with the third catcher. So he was left with no catcher right. in, the, in, in, in the dugout. Uh, I'm always fascinated by, is there, any, there must be an emergency catcher, somebody, but it's not a position that anybody can Office play. Solar or someone like that, I would think. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Madden did that. I said, wow, this guy is really... And then in Game 7, when he brought Lester in, he brought David Ross, and now it happens that Ross had a home run. Yeah. But he already was kind of playing, keep, cutting right. it very thin. Lester was pitching beautifully. Why did no, he take no, him out? Hendricks was pitching beautifully. No, no, Hendricks. That was the first mistake, to take out Hendricks. <laughs> The second mistake was that the card Lester, when he was doing so well, just to bring in Chapman, who got hit. Right. Yeah, who who could tell was tired because he threw too many yeah. pitches the night before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I always think about throwing too many pitches. This huge guy, 6'4", throw 20 pitches. Come on, let him throw 100 pitches. But, but mean, the thing what is, is baby in this guy. But the thing yeah. is, there's no room for error, right? Because at 100, Chapman's straight fastball at 103, a good hitter can hit it. Yeah, that's at 105, it can't. I mean, a, that's a the taxi problem. taxi driver in Florida told me that. I said, how can these guys get around? And I said, he said, these guys have been playing baseball their entire life. They, they can. And, and, and if it doesn't have movement on it, you know, yeah. that's oh, yeah. why a guy like Andrew Miller said something. Oh, yeah, but I mean, getting up to the plate, so this guy makes a mistake and drills you with 103 right. miles an hour. Whoo, yeah. he'll kill you. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I remember when, when Nolan Ryan broke somebody's arm once. Mm. Hit him. I remember Goose Gothard hitting Ron Singh in the World Series. I remember that. I want to, um, I want to pivot again a little bit because I know Carlos has his data here. So I want to talk about, and this is a little bit off target, but, but about the Latino vote in, in the recent election. The reason I, I, I'm going to begin with a, a couple of big picture questions to think about. To me, I, I have serious objections about the word Latino. First of all, you know where it comes from. It was the region around Rome that spoke that, that the Latium and the, their language was incorporated by Rome, and it was uh, then spread throughout the empire and so forth and so on. But that's not the truth. Tell me, do you know who called those Latin Americans? Um, yes, Napoleon III. Exactly. The French. When the French came to Mexico, they wanted to distinguish Amérique Latine from Anglo-America, because Amérique Latine had with the French a common uh, Roman uh, background. Uh, so the beginning of the word is very imperialistic, yeah, colonialist and all that, you know. Well, I always feel, feel weird in California, the term Anglo for white person, right? Right. I mean, I'm not Anglo. You're not Anglo, but by that definition, you are. You're not Mexican. I'm not Mexican. But in any case, but okay, so what term can we agree upon to use? You know, I use Hispanic or Latino. I think Hispanic is better. Okay, because... Many people also think that because it was a quote-unquote imposition by the federal government or the Nixon administration. It is, it is. You know, it's the reality that you have people from 19 Latin American countries in the Caribbean living in the United States, and this is th these two are just labels to refer right. to and, this. And, and, and they fact, themselves, I mean, the people that I know, they want to be known as Mexican or, or Cuban, Cuban or Puerto Rican or Dominican. Right. Oh, right. Same, same thing with Asian. But, right? I mean, but, but the newer generations, the second or third generations, the, a generation that has intermarried, they are picking up either Hispanic or Latino. 
uh, the original variations. Uh, that's so why I use either one uh, interchangeably, uh, recognizing that co they could both have yeah. uh, 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 those, those connotations. So I'm going to ask you three questions, mm -hmm. and then you can take this anywhere. Three mm -hmm. questions about the recent elections. First, I've only been paying close attention to American presidential politics since 1980. I mean, it's every election since I've been paying a fair amount of attention to. I would say beginning around 1988, we heard that the Hispanic vote was going to be, you know, this was the year. Um, so, so was this the year? The second question I want to ask is um, in the, the changing demographics of America, right? So there's this, if, if you turn back the clock to 2013-14, people like me, political scientists, are writing whoever the, I mean, New England Hillary is the nominee, but the Democrats have a very, very tough uh, road for the Republicans because the changing demographics, right? Mm -hmm. What I want to know is how much of that growth happened in the three states of, well, Florida was a swing state, but mm -hmm. of New York, California, Texas. How much of that demographic growth occurred in those states that were essentially safe states for one of the two parties? Mm -hmm. And again, ask, I, I'd be, I want to overview also, but, but the third question is, you know, strategically, Hillary Clinton invested resources towards the end in Texas and Arizona. Mm -hmm. I think with an eye towards moving Texas to becoming purple by 2020, 2024, and maybe flipping Arizona. Did that cost the election? So no, that did not cost her the election because she didn't win Arizona or Texas. But I'm uh, saying by putting resources into there. Right. The, the thing is that it's not that she was taking resources away from other states. It's just simply that she did not put enough resources in states that, in hindsight, she needed to put resources in. more field in. offices in Texas than right. Michigan. Right. Uh, exactly. But even if it wasn't in Michigan, had it been in Pennsylvania, uh, had it been in North Carolina, uh, th these are states that we knew were uh, uh, tipping point states. We knew that there were states that were in play. We knew that they, even though they had been, with the exception of Pennsylvania, I'm thinking more about Virginia, North Carolina, even though they had been tending uh, towards the Democratic Party, you know, they, not, they're not solidly Democratic, so you could not take them for granted. Obviously, I think she was also uh, uh, Persuaded by her own internal polling uh, that gave her a solid advantage, and you know you see that uh, it, it, it was uh, not the case. Um, the fact is, you know, and speaking about you know terminology and stereotypes that you know we, we may not like. I mean, this this whole concept of the sleeping giant really rubs me the wrong way. Uh, I never heard that, of it. Yeah, about Latinos being the we, sleeping giant. We have a we have a, a mountain in New Haven called the sleeping giant. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, they have been referring to the Latino electorate as the sleeping giant that maybe awoke and you know, and then you know, may, may would, would, would ter, you know, turn the, the election on 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 on, on his head. Uh, you know, that plays on many stereotypes about you know sleeping Latinos, etc. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in, in any event, the fact is that uh, number one, Latino turnout did increase in this past election. Uh, it was anticipated, and in, in fact, it was about it, it was the case. You know, over you know, 13 million uh, Latinos did turn out to vote. Uh, 13, thirteen, no, between thirteen or close to fourteen million, you know, did turn out to vote. You know, yes, they, you know, we, we still need to you know get the, the final official results right. you know, since they're still counting ballots in some places. Uh, but we do expect the Latino vote to have gone up, you know, by, by about two percentage points uh, of the electorate. Uh, but you know that only puts the Latino electorate at best, at best, at eleven and a half, not quite twelve percent. You know, so even though it is a sizable segment of the electorate uh, and one that can be determinative, 
particularly when elections are close, as they were in Michigan, in uh, North Carolina, uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, it is not going to determine the election. The, ter the elections in this country are still deter determined by what non-Hispanic whites do. It is the majority of the electorate. It is also a swing vote, largely. Uh, uh, or, you know, the, the, the swing voters come from that, you know, basic demographic. Some, some subset of that demographic. Correct. Because that dem non-Hispanic non Christian whites are also both, solidly Republican. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So um, the fact is that, yes, I mean, in, in terms of what we expect to happen, uh, yes, uh, the Latino vote did increase in this past, past election. The Latino vote ele overwhelmingly went for the Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton over uh, Donald Trump um, uh, significantly. Uh, perhaps not by the 18% that had been predicted by the polls just before the election, but certainly not by the 29% of support that Donald Trump was said to have received according to exit polls. We know that those exit polls are not weighted to account proportionately for the Latino population throughout the country. And you know, we, we uh, in, in the 2000 elections, you know, we, we had uh, results where you know, the exit poll said that 44% of the Latino vote voted for George. Uh, George W. Bush, when in fact it was closer to 39%. You know, just because, again, Latinos are not sampled proportionately uh, in this exit poll. Um, and the fact is that, you know, even though uh, the Latino vote overwhelmingly voted for uh, Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton, it was still not enough to sway the election. Uh, again, because most Latinos are in places, with the exception of Florida, Colorado, Arizona, Nevada, that are not in, at play. So, you know, where do Latinos, you know, 50% of the Latino uh, population and electorate are in California and Texas. Those two states are not at play, even though Texas did come closer to be at play, uh, hopefully, uh, or wishfully, uh, so, so in this past election. So, so, and then, of course, there's New York. And New Jersey, which are also, but you do have, I mean, I, I would say, I mean, after, you know the numbers, but I would suspect that the Latino vote, key role for Hillary Clinton, Nevada, and Colorado, as yes, you pointed out. Yes, absolutely. Now, but looking at the, where, we, where, where she lost the race, mm -hmm. which is the northern industrial Midwest, those are the states she should have won and she didn't, right? What I'm wondering there is that Donald Trump ran a racist campaign, and an anti part of, a component of which was a racism towards Latinos and, and Mexicans, but, but, but not focused... I mean, generalized, so it didn't have to be just Mexicans, right? Mm -hmm. And do you think that in those states, he benefited from being able to run that racist campaign without the backlash of people who are actually of that group voting against him, which is what happens when you run a racist campaign like that in California. It costs you votes. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, does he kind of benefit from getting the benefit of the racism without the drawback of actually having Mexican-Americans there who would vote against him? Well, in I mean, we know that, for instance, uh, uh, in terms of, you know, some preliminary results from Wisconsin, uh, you know, they went for Hillary Clinton, you know, above 80%. But uh, no proportion uh, of vote. Exactly. You know, in, in Wisconsin, what per, was the percentage of the vote uh, that is Latino? It's minimal. Right. You know, it's less than 1%. Uh, but if it's 5%, she wins the race. Right. I mean, it's not enough people there, but if it were, exactly. Uh, so, so, you know, we also need to look at, uh, at the, 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 the concentration of Latino voters as part of the electorate in these different uh, uh, states. Um, so can they c 
compensate? Can they? No, no, not when they are a small slice of the electorate. When they are a large part of the electorate, as they are in California, as they are in Texas, as they are in uh, Florida, they can make a difference, and they, in fact, did make a difference. It's interesting because uh, uh, in Florida, uh, where the majority of the electorate, the Hispanic electorate, is not of Mexican-American origin, uh, yes, I mean, Trump did obtain a higher percentage of the vote, uh, but still less than what Mitt Romney uh, obtained uh, uh, in the elections when he ran. So, you know, uh, and you still had a majority of Latinos, regardless of whether they were Mexican, American, uh, Puerto Rican, or Cuban, that still voted for uh, Hillary Clinton. Still, you have a Cuban, Cuban American vote that just over 50% voted for Donald Trump. Uh, but that could just be also because they are reliable Republican voters that whose reliability has been dwindling as you have a new generation uh, coming up. That, again, speaks to the heterogeneity of the Latino vote. Uh, you know, even though the Latino vote is largely a Mexican-American or Mexican-origin uh, population vote, uh, uh, you have a variety uh, of you know, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, Central Americans, South mm -hmm. Americans, and they tend to vote, uh, you know, they tend to lean towards the Democratic side, but not consistently. And different degrees remain true, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So is there, I mean, I think this election, with regards to what you just said, there's two questions that come to mind. The first question is the, the kind of demographic one. So we can probably agree that, that, that a resource allocation decision that Hillary Clinton made did not help her in this, right? She didn't flip Texas, she didn't flip Arizona. Do you see that as, part A, part a of this question is by 2020, 2024, or 2024, is that going to be more possible? And then, given that, and given, and this is a little bit off topic, but, but given that and given that um, I unfortunately assume that Merrick Garland does not get confirmed by the Senate, that Donald Trump puts someone in the court who is more favorable to his political views, and the Senate confirms that person you know, in 2000 when he becomes president, are we going to see, and if you and I, the three of us can figure this out, are we going to see a Republican party at the local and state level that is going to kind of redouble their efforts on voter suppression, on limiting access to the ballot as a way to ensure that they can stay in power because Steve Bannon has promised 50 years of white supremacy, I mean, of the Republican Party being in power. Yeah. Um, I, I do believe, and, and that's, you know, sometimes we, we fool ourselves when we speak about American politics by just looking at what is happening nationally. Uh, when we wish to look at state races. And in state races, the Republican Party has become ascendant uh, uh, for a while now. Uh, and in this election, they have solidified, you know, uh, capturing state legislatures, governorships, etc. cetera. Uh, that's why, you know, I've always been kind of uh, reluctant to just jump on this bandwagon talking about, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Republican Party needs to uh, uh, reach out to a variety of, you know, population subgroups uh, just because they're the future of the country. Well, not if you are able to manipulate the institutions, the political institutions at the state level and at the local level, uh, you know, you can maintain power uh, for a longer period of time in spite of demographics. So that's right. And, and the example uh, where that didn't happen is 1994 in California. And I think, I'm pretty sure 1994, Prop 187. Do you remember this, this initiative, Absolutely. which was um, widely despised mm -hmm. by progressives mm -hmm. and, and, and Mexican-Americans who, who were the target mm -hmm. of, this, of this, and other immigrant groups too. Mm -hmm. And 
Pete Wilson, the governor at the time, made this his kind of signature issue, and he was thought of as a very likely candidate for president in 1996. It, it, it basically cost him that, mm -hmm. but it also cost the Republican Party California for a generation. I mean, at least, at least California now is bluer than New York, right? I mean, this is just, they don't, they don't compete there. The, the primary, the, the, the runoff for the U.S. Senate seat that Barbara Boxer, because she sought, didn't seek re-election, the top two candidates were Democrats. No Republican broke in the top two in an open primary, right? Like, that's, that tells you something. So, if you're, if you're looking at this, you say one strategy, but, but because of that, the Republican Party of California cannot try to reach out to, to Mexican-American voters, they just don't want to hear it from them. Is, has Donald Trump probably has the same effect nationally, which means that this statewide strategy is, is, is all they have, which in my view means it's something which you should be acutely concerned. Let's look at Texas. I, I think Texas is a very interesting case because I think that, yes, as the, the, the proportion of the Latino electorate grows in Texas uh, and becomes more significant, and as Texas starts losing some of its rednecks, uh, uh, per, as a result, perhaps, of the growth in the Latino electorate, that doesn't mean that it's going to turn purple or, 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 you know, go blue. Or even like magenta. Right. Because of the fact that uh, you have, particularly, the, the political culture in Texas can be very conservative. And, you know, and, and the same way you had Democrats in Texas, there were Southern Democrats. Right, sure. So, you know, uh, socially they were uh, conservatives. And you have a Latino electorate that can be very much conservative in social issues. Oh, social yes. Issues. Uh, things like uh, abortion. Mm. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, regarding uh, gay marriage, same-sex yeah, unions, yeah. things of this nature, or what have you. Uh, but the fact is that, and perhaps this might also explain the little bit of support that Donald Trump did get uh, 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 in this election. The number one issue affecting Latino voters is jobs and the economy. And many of those Latinos who may have been in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Ohio, they were also affected by an economy that is not producing well-paying, uh, uh, skilled and semi-skilled jobs uh, in manufacturing or what have you. Uh, and they may have been also persuaded. Maybe they were also buying into the wishful thinking that Donald Trump can bring back Manufacturing. And, and presumably the small proportion of African-American voters who cast their vote for Donald Trump, I mean the smaller proportion, mm -hmm. uh, were, were thinking the same way. I mean, this right. and, and you also have to look at the fact that uh, 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 in places like Texas where, you know, with a growing Latino population, uh, but also with a fairly conservative streak in them, uh, they may vote at the presidential ticket still for a Democrat, but they may still support local conservative candidates at the state level. And, and, this, and this was a, you know, when it looked like Hillary Clinton was going to win this thing easily, this was the challenge a lot of state-level Republican parties were wrestling with, which mm -hmm. is that, that, that if we get behind Donald Trump, we, you know, Donald Trump may be able to run a campaign mm -hmm. with terrible numbers mm -hmm. from, from Latino voters, but in Texas, we got to get 40%. Yeah. we got to get 30%. Otherwise, we have no chance. And, and that, which is what happened in California. So they have to, you know, to, to, to get too close to Donald Trump's racism mm -hmm. it makes it difficult for the state party. And, and again, what's happening is that if you look at the voter registration uh, uh, data, uh, fewer Latinos are registering to vote for a party. They're, you know, registering to vote as independents. Mm. They do, the ones that do register, they tend to register on the Democratic 
uh, uh, the Democratic Party, but a larger, a growing proportion of uh, registrants uh, that are Latino are registering without a party designation. Mm. So, and so it's not that by losing support of the you know, from the you know, not supporting Republican candidates doesn't mean that they are going to automatically support Democratic candidates. They are becoming just like the rest of the country, more independent-minded. Or and more secular, each part, both parties. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, and also more willing to cross quote-unquote party lines yeah. in order to vote for uh, a candidate from... Yeah, and in those, lat in, in those Hispanic families, uh, there's no tradition of being for a given party, mm -hmm. so therefore they feel freer mm -hmm. to be independent. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, you're, if your parents were Democrats, but if they were in Mexico, when but we need to go back to the, to the, to the fact that, by and large, the, 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 the bulk of the Latino electorate uh, uh, is of you know, first and second generation. Uh, they tend to be of working class, lower middle class backgrounds. That doesn't mean that there are no upper class or upper middle class you know, Latino voters. There are many, but proportionately, it tends to be a working class, lower middle class uh, uh, electorate concerned with political parties. They pay lip service to the Latino electorate uh, uh, as something that is very important to, to their growth or to their you know, standing, uh, but I don't think that they're really following through uh, with tapping on that electorate as a prime electorate that they seek to uh, nurture. Well, that, I think that's a very helpful because you know, if you read the media, you read discussions of the Latino electorate Latino voter, but you don't read the analysis. And Carlos, thank you. This is really uh, helpful. You have these stacks of paper with numbers. I'm kind of wishing I had my glasses on so I can look over and see it. We'll go over that later. But I'm wondering if you could maybe, before we wrap up, what are your thoughts about baseball in Cuba today? Well, it's in, uh, in decline. Um, the Luis Robert, uh, who was the, the prime prospect, he's 19 years old, playing for Fierro de Avila, uh, has disappeared. He's obviously left uh, the country, as, as many, many have. I, I want to add that these players leave because they want to have a future in baseball, but also because they want to be free. Because if you live in Cuba, you're not free. You're subject to surveillance of the neighborhood watch committee and, uh, and so forth and so on. And also, if you are a ball player, you cannot play for whomever you, you want to play. Let's say you are a shortstop in Fierro de Avila, but you're behind established figure. Uh, you cannot go to Havana or to Granma and offer your services. No, no, no. You got to play for the team where you live, where, where, where you're resident. Therefore, you might wither uh, waiting for someone to move on. So there is no freedom to, uh, uh, at that level. Uh, this is going to continue to erode uh, baseball in Cuba. Of course, uh, Cuba has always produced uh, great ball players, and others will come along. But at this point, the game is in, uh, in uh, rapid decline. Whereas in the major leagues, there is quite uh, a group of, of prominent uh, ball players. There are Abreu, Chester, Puig, who hasn't quite <laughs> done as well as one had uh, predicted. Uh, I don't think the final story on Yester Puig no, is going to no, be no. soon. No, Echeverria, uh, not keen of mine, who played a shortstop for um, uh, Miami. Uh, Iglesias, uh, the shortstop for Detroit, 
this was superb defensive yep. job, job stuff, uh, and and so forth and so on. I mean, like the Dortmund, the high minor league. Uh, so uh, that uh, that could make up a team for the baseball classic. I wrote about this before the last classic that they should have had a Cuban team with Cubans outside of Cuba yeah. and call it Free Cuba. Right, but I think that now they just want to play for the U.S., right? Some of these guys. Yeah, some of them might play for the U.S. Uh, because the Cuban establishment doesn't want to allow them to play for the Cuban team. And they don't so. want to play Free Cuba because they'd lose to Free Cuba. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right, I mean, you oh, put that team together would yeah, be... Yeah, yeah so uh, who knows? Uh, who knows uh, on the more specific level what Chapman is going to do with free agency? Uh, what Cespedes is going to do with his, uh, whether Abreu is going to uh, go back. I mean, he, he picked up at the end of the season, but he had a, a, a middling uh, season for him. Uh, so we shall see. Wait till next year, as they say. <laughs> well, thank you, Roberto. Thank you, Carlos. This was a great conversation. Thank you for all your time, for bearing with us through all the interruptions. And uh, I appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thanks for having Thank you again for listening to the podcast. Again, my name is Lincoln Mitchell. You can follow me at Lincoln Mitchell on Twitter. And I hope you all have a happy Thanksgiving.